This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 295. Today we welcome Scott Oliphant to the program to speak about the aseity of the sun. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. This is now episode 295. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. We've got a great panel lined up for you today and a great subject as well. Let me introduce to you first Jared Oliphant, who is a regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Jared. It's good to have you on again. Thanks, Camden. Good to be back on. We also have with us Derek Barson, who is the founding pastor of All Souls uh, Church in New York City. Uh, But now he's moved on and he's a THM student at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Derek. It's great to speak with you again. Great to be here. And we have our great guest. Uh, We're very pleased to welcome back to the program uh, to follow up on uh, some previous discussions. We have Dr. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Dr. Oliphant. It's great to have you with us again. Thanks, gentlemen. Good to be with you. Well, today we're going to be speaking about the aseity of the sun. We'll explain what that means in a moment. Um, we're following up on a conversation that Dr. Oliphant began on the Reformed Media Review. I will place a link to that interview in our episode description. But he spoke about a book by Brandon Ellis on Calvin, Classical Trinitarianism, and the Aseity of the Sun. An excellent review, almost a gold standard of our Reform Media reviews, very thorough one. But even that was condensed, and you can find a fuller written and academic review in the most recent issue of the Westminster Theological Journal. Uh, again, I'll put bibliographic information on that in the episode description as well. So that's what we're going to be speaking about today, interfacing all of that information with some material that Dr. Oliphant has in his book, God With Us, Divine Condescension and the Attributes of God, published by Crossway. But before we begin our conversation, I do need to mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Just visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support. We have many different ways that you can do so, uh, but we really appreciate the monthly donors, the people that sign up uh, for a monthly plan and, and contribute. As little as $5 a month can be a big help for us to uh, help us cover our costs and also move into the future with some great projects we have, uh, ways that we feel that we can help you, the listener, and support the church uh, throughout the week. So visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate to pledge your support. We thank you so much for all that you do in supporting us here at Reformed Forum in this particular program, Christ the Center. Now, Dr. Oliphant, uh, of course, uh, teaches uh, the Doctrine of God class at Westminster Theological Seminary, and that uh, deals with the Doctrine of the Trinity. It deals with uh, God's relationship to creation, um, what it means for him to condescend to create in the first place. And that, of course, touches upon the subject of aseity. Uh Dr. Oliphant, could you uh, just rehearse for us or remind us of, of uh, Dr. Brandon Ellis's book and uh, why you were so excited about it? What was its main theme and uh, the things it was trying to promote and protect. 
The uh, the main thing that Ellis uh, wants to do in in his book is to show uh, the I think significant advance uh, within a classical uh, Orthodox Trinitarian tradition uh, of Calvin's uh, construal of the aseity of the Son. And uh, see, I think it's important to recognize um, that. Uh, Calvin did uh, say some things that were relatively unique in the way that he uh, formulated his understanding of the language of how we speak about um, God as triune, and he did that within the context. This is important as well within the context of orthodoxy. Now he he, uh, he was working with uh, those. Calvin was arguing against those who were unorthodox as well uh, in much of his career. Um, but it was primarily within the context of orthodoxy that, that Calvin was concerned to uh, develop uh, and advance the, uh, the way we speak about God as triune. And the controversies uh, were called, have been called, the autotheon uh, controversies. Um, autotheon meaning God of himself, uh, speaking there, referencing God. And what Calvin is uh, uh, wanting to argue, and this is the the thesis of uh, Ellis's book, is that uh, we need uh, to speak, if we're going to be consistent biblically and theologically, we need to speak of the Son's aseity, which is God of himself. We need to speak of that as absolute and not relative. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the, the interesting, I think, uh, interesting point, one, one of the reasons um, I was uh, excited to, to read this study is because I hadn't seen anything like it in, in a historical context, and um, coincidentally, it was, uh, it's, the, it's the view that I've been teaching in Doctrine of God for a number of years, and the view that I set forth with respect to the Son in the book God with us. So in, in that way, um, it's, it's a, a substantial and significant uh, support to what I think is a, a better, more biblical way for Orthodox people to think and to speak about the Trinity. Um, but it also uh, has within it um, much depth and richness that I think has yet to be pursued when we think about the, uh, the aseity of the Son. Uh, so what, what, what Ellis is doing then is showing us um, that the, uh, the, the majority view of the son's aseity, uh, that is his, um, his absolute um, godness, if I could put it that way, that, that the majority view uh, sees that aseity, the deity, if I could say, the essence of the son as one that is communicated from the father to the son. And, the, and that uh, stems uh, back uh, centrally, as we might imagine, to Thomas Aquinas and his philosophical notion that generation itself, any notion of generation, must include communication of essence. And, and since that time, uh, this is something that, um, that obviously the, the Romanists have, have agreed to, but also, unfortunately, in my view, many of the Reformed um, took this up as well. And again, this is not, we're not talking here about heresy. We're not talking about uh, massive uh, divergence from orthodox. We're talking within the context of orthodoxy, what is the most consistent way to think about and speak about the aseity of the sun? All, all of these groups, because they're orthodox, affirm the sun's aseity. But Calvin's advance is that if you're going to affirm that, the aseity of the sun has to be absolute and not relative. It's, it cannot be something that is communicated from the Father to the Son. Calvin's concern is, uh, is, is primarily with the, the phrase uh, in, in the Nicene uh, Creed, Deum de Deo, 
That is God of God, light of light, uh, very God of very God. Now, now Calvin is not um, uh, rejecting the Nicene Creed in any way, shape, or form. That it, that is very clear in Calvin's writings, and particularly in his letters in the Trinitarian controversies. And that's important. Uh, that's an important point to make because Philip uh, Schaff uh, gives the uh, distinct impression. Uh, clearly, uh, that Calvin rejects the Nicene Creed, and 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 Schaff says that he rejects it because of his quote damp because of the quote damnable clauses unquote. That's what Schaff says about Calvin's view of the Nicene Creed. Well, I think that's Schaff's um, overstatement and in- inaccuracy there, um, unusual in some ways, but um, not at all what Calvin was doing. He would not subscribe the Nicene Creed in in the context of the particular controversy with Carolee because uh, Carolee was insistent that um, for one to be orthodox, you must subscribe that creed. And Calvin's uh, point was, in the, in the midst of the controversy, all I need to affirm is the authority of the Word of God, and I, I can get my theology from that. So Calvin was not uh, thereby insistent that the Nicene Creed was unorthodox. On the contrary, he affirmed it as orthodox. But his problem was that the expression deum de deo allowed for a communicated essence from father to son when we speak of Trinity, so that the way in which you affirm the consubstantiality of God is by way of the particularity of the persons. You cannot have consubstantial except through eternal generation mm. of the son, particularly. Now, the Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit uh, comes into this discussion, but its, its focus now is on the aseity of the son. And see, then, then what happens... If I can move sort of quickly from Calvin, what happens is that uh, Ellis makes this point. The primary point of contention between uh, Arminians and Calvinists Mm -hmm. prior to Dort is not in the area of salvation, but is specifically focused around the aseity of the Son. I mean, there were other things going on, so that's not the only uh, thing that was a point of contention. But the primary main point of contention was around the aseity of the Son. Arminius affirms that and remains orthodox, but interestingly, Episcopius then, after the Synod of Dort, is very clear that the Son is ontologically subordinate to the Father because the essence of who God is only resides absolutely in the Father and then mm-hmm. relatively in the Son and the Spirit. So mm-hmm. you can see then how this, this orthodox notion of communicated essence moves fairly quickly, and I think consistently. I think what we're thinking here now about the consistency of orthodoxy, it moves fairly quickly and consistently to a notion of subordination of the Son that uh, some uh, of the remonstrants and uh, Arminians uh, took up after the Senate of Dort. So, so you can have, uh, I think, very quickly, by virtue of consistency, a theological notion of ontological subordination of the Son, if you affirm, mm-hmm. as orthodoxy has done, and you can remain orthodox in, confer- in affirming it, if you affirm a communicated essence. And that then becomes the focus of the problem that, that Ellis wants to, mm-hmm. to tease out and does a very good job of that. And that's no doubt a, an issue that's replete throughout contemporary Trinitarian thought as well. Exactly. And I'm running into that all over the place when my dissertation work on Karl Rahner and his contemporaries and followers. Um, sure. So why then is it important to maintain the aseity of the Son and, rather than just understanding him as, as a subordinate being that flows out of or is somehow contingent upon the Father who is often identified as God himself? 
yeah, exclusively. Think, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. The way the way Ellis puts it, which I think is very is very helpful, is um, th- can we speak of it uh, ad adjectivally only? That is the aseity of the sun, or may we speak of it ad adverbially? Uh, in terms of the way uh, Scripture uh, allows us to speak of the sons of seity. That is, uh, we can affirm uh, the Son as self-existent God, um, adjectivally, but can we affirm Him, should we affirm Him, as God self-existently? And it's that latter point that Calvin says, yes, we must affirm the Son as God self-existently, and not simply as self-existent God. So the importance of that um, has to do, again, with the notion of a relative essence. Now, um, again, to, to remain orthodox, um, every uh, uh, person in the Reformed tradition, many in the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, will affirm the simplicity of God. Um, but in order to affirm the simplicity of God together with this Trinitarian construal, what, what has to be said is that, the, is that there is, as a matter of fact, a significant and even essential distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit, but that that essential distinction in no way um, bumps up against our uh, confession of simplicity. So that even um, though—see, this gets very complicated—but even though we uh, we affirm um, God as simple, we also have affirmed in, in, the, in the history of this, the majority uh, opinion in this, we have also affirmed that there is a substantial difference between Father and Son, and that the Father has his essence absolutely, the Son relatively. And then you just have to go on and say, but this in no way um, um, uh, c- contravenes uh, simplicity. And then you plant the flag of mystery. Okay, we all we all do that. We have to plant the flag of mystery somewhere. But but Calvin's question is: Are we planting it in the right place? I mean, that's my construal of Calvin. He doesn't say that uh, specifically. Sure. Are right. we planting the flag of mystery in the right place? It, and Calvin says no. Uh, if we if we ground and found the consubstantiality of the three persons of the Trinity in that communicative essence, if we do that. Then God is uh, then consubstantiality is only affirmed by way of the persons themselves. Right. On the other hand, what Calvin is arguing is no. It, the question can be put this way: Is there anything with respect to God as God that can not be affirmed in the same way of each of the three persons? All right, that's that's you, you can see maybe how that question is. Yeah. There anything we can say of the Father with respect to His godness? That we cannot say with respect to the Son or the Spirit, and and uh, you know our our knee jerk reaction would be no, of course not. The Trinitarian tradition, both in uh, Roman Catholic and Reform, majority Reformed, has been yes, there is something, and it is the essence of the Father, which is different with respect to the Father than it is with respect to the Son or the Spirit. Calvin saw this as a problem. He saw it as going all the way back to Nicaea. And he, he, he saw it in, in the context of orthodoxy now, and also dealing with some heretics, but primarily in the context of orthodoxy, he wanted to clean up the language um, and say, if we're going to be consistent in our articulation of the Trinity, anything that we say of God must be said without qualifier of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So mm-hmm. the Father is essentially God. The Son is essentially not derivatively or relatively God as is also the Holy Spirit. Each of the persons is completely and only 
God without um, respect to the person. So Calvin divides the language then up between uh, who the Son is as God and who the Son is as Son. And so then he wants to say, of course, relatively, we've always said in Trinitarian formulation, relatively as Son, there is a dependence upon the Father. That's the order of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But there's no ontological subordination because ontologically, he is the son, Ase, and not relative to the father. What another way to uh, describe the problem is that um, in Calvin's day and before that they had a hang-up really with eternally begotten. And, um, you know, the, the analogy of that eternally begotten phrase, that um, that would have priority in even discussing essence. And um, so when you, when you use the analogy... Um, too much weight is is put on really a lot of the human elements of eternally begotten. Um, did you see that at all? Yeah, that's that's exactly part of the problem. See, when once once Aquinas uh, inserted his philosophical understanding of uh, communicated essence, which he says is entailed by any notion of generation, right? Then what you have is the, the, the idea of, of the Son being eternally begotten necessarily entails a communication of his essence. And, and Ellis is saying that is not a consistently biblical way to think. What, what Ellis is making the point that what we've done there is we've imposed philosophical categories on eternal generation and not, and not allowed uh, Scripture to uh, help us understand this as much as we should. Again, we're within the context of orthodoxy, but we've imposed philosophical categories such that eternally begotten has to mean communication of essence. And, and Calvin's point was, you know, we don't even know what eternally begotten means. I mean, Ca- Calvin had problems with the idea that this is an ongoing kind of thing, uh, but um, h- at least it has to pertain, in Calvin's view, only to his person and not to his essence. And that's where Trinitarian language has, uh, is meant to take its cue now, now, this is something, you know, that we, those of us who are Westminster type, this is what we learn, and so we think this is the way that the church has, uh, has spoken throughout the centuries, but it really was uh, because of Calvin and, and later, a later minority review, uh, minority view in the Reformed tradition that was taken up, uh, thankfully, at Princeton, particularly, um, I think, in a magisterial way by uh, Warfield, and 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 then uh, transferred to uh, Westminster. This is the way we've always understood Trinitarian language, but it's not the majority view. And I think I think it helps us again um, to weed out some of the Thomistic philosophical influence in order to be more sufficiently Christ and Son centered in the way we think about the Bible. How did um, the majority reformed view? How did they, in understanding, communicated a seity? How did they not slide towards Episcosius' understanding of an ontological uh, subordination? Well, um, Ellis's point, and I think the, the point that, you know, the, the way to answer that is that they remained happily inconsistent. Um, you know, and this, this is why it, it the, you know, it's within the context of orthodoxy. Um, if we think, you know, if we think generally, let's use this analogy, if we think generally about the, the Christian uh, tradition, in the Christian tradition, we've we've always included Arminianism as as a Christian option. Um, in other words, Arminians we we would say uh, can have a true and credible profession of of Christ. Yet uh, they remain uh, inconsistent in in the the views that they want to hold 
but we wouldn't say, most of us, at least traditionally, we wouldn't say that they are unorthodox in, in that specific way of thinking, thinking about it. It's not a heresy in the way that it's been dealt with in Scripture. Now, if you think about that in terms of Trinitarian language, um, the, the majority reform view has been um, sort of happily uh, inconsistent in the way that they've articulated the, the Trinity. So um, if you look at Turretin, this is a perfect example in the way Turretin um, addresses this. Um, and I hate, to, you know, I hate to get bogged down too much, but let me just read a, a short section from Turretin here so that you'll this, – this is in direct response to Derek's good question. This, sure. is, this, is, this is how they maintain it. Here's what Turretin says. He says, although the Son is from the Father – Nevertheless, he may be called God of himself, autotheos, not with respect to his person, but essence, not relatively as son, for thus he is from the Father, but absolutely as God. All right? Now, that sounds like Calvin, doesn't it? Uh, So there he's trying to take Calvin's language, which most of the majority Reformed wanted to do. But then uh, later on, almost the next paragraph, he says, as all generation indicates a communication of essence on the part of the begetter to the begotten, by which the begotten becomes like the begetter and partakes of the same nature with him, so this wonderful generation is rightly expressed as a communication of essence from the Father by which the Son possesses indivisibly the same essence with him and is made perfectly like him. All right, so... Turretin wants to have his cake and eat it, too. He wants to say, hooray for Calvin, we're with you, but hooray for Thomas, we've got to stay with you as well. And, and um, Ellis is making the point that you re- really can't do both of those, except simply by verbal fiat. You just say, this is the way it is. We just proclaim that both of these things are, are the case. And, and Ellis's point is, that's inconsistent. My point has been that that's inconsistent. We're, we, we really can't maintain both of these, certainly not... Um, uh, uh, theologically, and I don't think biblically as well. Yeah, and doesn't Ellis includes a, a quote from I think it's Arminius that basically says if you maintain both of those, then um, on either side, the content of the meaning of what you're saying is just going to be emptied out. So it's just not it's just not going to contain any meaning. Otherwise, it's going to be contradictory. Exactly. Uh, yeah, El- Ellis makes the point that while Arminius remained orthodox, his his uh, adamant insistence on a communicated essence from father to son. I think uh, Ellis, this is almost a quote, um, verges on Socinianism. He gets, pu- he gets close to a kind of Socinian view. He doesn't get there, but it didn't take long for it to get there. Episcopius takes that up in, in, in some kind of fashion uh, fairly uh, soon after that. Let's speak a little bit about uh, some of the material in your book, God With Us, uh, particularly starting here in Chapter 3, and and talk about more of a positive way to, to formulate this. And Clearly, we want to maintain the aseity of the Son, the fact that he is autotheos, he is preexistent, so there's, there's a plethora of uh, scriptural passages that we can go to, to to prove that and demonstrate that. But how do we understand the Son as autotheos, but also as one now who assumes a human nature and interacts with creation who enters into space and time in very tangible and specific ways. Yeah. See, I think that, I think the beauty of this, um, th- th- this is where, where I am. I think the beauty of this and, and an area that we haven't, um, in the reform tradition, uh, pursued, uh, yet, uh, with vigor is that what, what we be, can begin to do then is to think more concretely in the way that the Reformed have traditionally done, think more concretely 
about God's interaction uh, with creation from the beginning um, to uh, into eternity. Um, and I think much of that thought has been primarily abstract, and so it has been has gotten uh, caught up in all kinds of, I think, uh, incoherencies, um, and again, planting the flag of mystery in places that I think um, Scripture does not plant it. So, for example, um, when, when, you, when you read, um, I'm getting to your question, Camden, but let me just kind of do the backside back yeah, sure. uh, story here. When you read Warfield's um, analysis of Calvin's view of the Trinity, which Ellis interacts with and takes his cue from, even though he disagrees with the point here and there on Warfield, um, when you read that Warfield's analysis, which I think is just masterful, um, what Warfield shows, uh, in part, uh, is that Calvin believed, and Warfield believes, and, and I've taught, and we've been we've been teaching at Westminster that um, that the uh, that Yahweh in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, is, as a matter of fact, uh, the Son of God condescended, and that that from the beginning of creation, Bovink makes this point, and he gets it from Calvin, from the beginning of creation. Uh, there has been, I think Calvin is this insistent, there has been no revelation of God from the beginning that has not been mediated through the second person of the Trinity, um, such that he is the one, as the one sent, who from the beginning has condescended to interact with creation. So that, um, you know, what when uh, I think part of the problem of our um, less than uh, robust affirmation of the sons of seity, part of the problem of that um, uh, moves us into a kind of, if I could be sort of provocative here, a kind of dispensational way of thinking about the sons' mediation such that we really think it begins in earnest at the Incarnation. Now, it, it has its central focus and its sui generis character at the Incarnation. There's no question about that, because in no other time in redemptive history does the second person of the Trinity take on a human nature uh, permanently. But that, all of that, the Incarnation is proleptically seen in uh, the mediation of God revealed in the Old Testament uh, through and to his creation and to his people. So that the, the positive here, I think, is that, um, as, as Warfield says about Calvin, and um, I think he's exactly right here, that um, when, when uh, the, the God whom Isaiah saw in the temple in, in Isaiah 6 is, is Christ uh, himself, is the Son of God. Uh, so that we can, in order to be sufficiently Christocentric, and I think um, sufficiently redemptive historical, we need to be uh, more serious about understanding the reality of the presence of uh, the Son of God in his, uh, in, in his uh, condescension uh, throughout uh, redemptive history and in Scripture. Um, uh, uh, Voss speaks about it in biblical theology as sacramental condescensions, uh, including, as uh, Voss himself uh, says, uh, the angel of the Lord uh, assuming uh, particular forms, uh, human forms and other forms, uh, for the purpose of revelation. So that even Voss says that the, the angel of the Lord, who is the Son of God, assumes characteristics by virtue of his condescension uh, in the Old Testament, all of this uh, leading, of course, to that great revelation of the Son of God when he takes on humanity mm -hmm. when the time had fully come. Uh, and I think if we see if we begin to read our Bibles in this way, we don't get caught up in uh, abstractions of 
Uh, how does uh, an eternal God um, speak uh, to Moses? Well, he, he does it by, by um, anthropomorphisms. He does it by uh, a condescension in which um, uh, all we can say is he doesn't change and he speaks. Um, you know, a, a thing I read uh, recently on, on a review of a certain book, that's, that's basically what it says. Uh, all we can say is God is eternal and he speaks. And, and I think, yes, I want to affirm that God is eternal and he speaks, but the Bible gives us a much richer and I think more robust way of understanding that uh, in, in covenantal terms by virtue of God's voluntary condescension to his creation. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we take that more in the direction of, of Chalcedon, also the more theological treatments and all the, all the important Christological doctrines that we affirm from Colossians 1, 5, 15 through 19, but especially verses like Philippians 2, 6 through 11, uh, those sorts of places. Clearly, we want to affirm that God condescends, and specifically the Son condescends in Christophanes, and Joshua, Exodus 30, uh, Genesis 18. We see the Son appearing uh, in human form using created media in many places. Um, but I guess my question here at this point is, what are the similarities, but yet also the differences in that type of assumption or perhaps appropriation that we find in the Old Testament versus what we find coming in its fullness and climactically in the incarnation proper? Uh, you know, how ontologically and metaphysically can we relate, but yet distinguish those two forms of condescension? Yeah, um, I, I think that. I think that's a good way to, to, to put it, uh, the way you put it in your question, because it, it, it highlights both that there are continuities and discontinuities. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, we're, where we are in redemptive history now, we, we want to affirm, as, as Scripture does, that the center of it all is uh, in uh, Christ coming uh, in the incarnation. So that is central to everything that we want to think about and everything that we want to affirm. And that that coming in his incarnation, again, is a once-for-all occasion, redemptive occasion, um, that, that God um, performs uh, in, in the fullness of time. Mm-hmm. But now that, so that's, that's the discontinuity. There's yeah, it's sui generis, like you've said already. That, I mean, yeah, you're, you, yeah. that's not present in Genesis right. 18, for instance. Yeah, there's and nothing. And it persists, right? It yeah, pers- and it's it eternal. It persists on, it didn't, yeah. Exactly. But... See, I think what we've what we've done, and I think there's been inadvertence. So I'm not, you know, I'm not um, wanting to impugn any motives sure. here. But I think what we've sometimes inadvertently done is is um, communicated, uh, maybe even thought and written as if that's the only or the first um, way that the Son of God reveals Himself. And then prior to that, what we tend to say is um, there's there's God interacting with with His people, God interacting, God communicating, God doing this, God doing that. And that's certainly true, but um, but to me, it's 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 more um, it's it's more of an Islamic way of thinking about it rather than a Christian way of thinking about it because it's it's better for us to say um, the Triune God is doing this in the Old Testament is interacting with His creation and He's doing it through the mediation of the Son, so that when the Son condescends prior to His incarnation. He still does take on um, created properties, elements uh, that he that he must take on in order to communicate. That he's determined to do that way, um, but the, none of that is is in any way permanent. 
Um, he, he does that in order to show, and this is what Old Testament saints should have seen and did see if they were truly saints, in order to show that the way in which God is going to deal with his people and particularly going to redeem his people is by condescension in, in uh, becoming one of us without in any way uh, giving up uh, who he is as God essentially. So that's, that's in part what, what Chalcedon is affirming, that that uh, Jesus Christ is is fully God. There's no separation. There's no division. There's no mixture uh, of any of the uh, um, uh, any of the deity with the humanity. None of that um, uh, uh, blends together in any sort of way. But we affirm uh, the Son of God being uh, fully God and taking on humanity. We we do not affirm that two natures unite to make one person. That's the right. way it's often um, discussed. And I think, you know, this does get very confusing, particularly in Lutheran Christology, which is its own sui generis. There's nothing like that. <laughs> um, but, but you see, what, what we affirm is that the person of the Son of God is the same person, fully God, essentially God, who then takes on a human nature. That human nature is anhypostatic and inhypostatic. That is, it's not a person. It's not personal until and unless it is uh, taken by the person of the Son of God. Uh, and so we, we see that um, given to us uh, sort of forward in a forward-looking way throughout the Old Testament. And if we begin to see it that way, see, we don't, we don't have to rely then on a uh, simple kind of um, abstractions and, and planting the flag of mystery, and we just don't know how the Eternal One can speak. Uh, well, we don't fundamentally because God is always mysterious to us, but we do know that by virtue of His covenantal condescension, Mm-hmm. He does uh, remain who he is and at the same time interact with us on our level, taking on characteristics and properties that he didn't have to take on, but which he does take on in order to relate himself to creation and to his people. I guess I'm trying to get at the difference here between you know ways in which God relates to us. And yeah. the incarnation casts the discussion in a certain direction. I'm wondering if the category of condescension is broader than a taking to metaphor. You know. Right. Yeah, I think it's a very good question. Um, it just It's not a question that's easily answered. And so I think the way to think about it, in, in my view, is, is this. When uh, condescension itself is a metaphor, because we all know that God yeah. doesn't literally occupy a place yes. in coming down that he didn't occupy previously. So he, it, given that he is spatially everywhere, uh, re- repletively present, as we say, what does it mean that God condescends? Well, I think the way to think about this, and they're, they're not the only way, but, but one way to think about this is to recognize that uh, when God determined and decreed to relate himself to something outside of himself, that relationship included that there would be properties with respect to God that he would not have previously. Um, and again, if we think of the incarnation, we see this in its climactic fashion. Now, if we think uh, incarnation backwards and think, okay, what is God doing in, in relating himself in this way? Well, what he's doing is he is um, uh, condescent, that is, he is um, taking on, um, you know, you're asking what are, what are properties, and, and the Reformed would say properties is a good generic term to use. It would include the notion of attributes and include other notions that we have. Um, a, a property would be something like God's anger or God's jealousy. Now, are those properties, uh, you know, you could ask the question, are those properties uh, created or are they uh, of the creator? 
And I think, you know, part of the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the other answer is to make, uh, again, historic theological distinctions of modality uh, so that we can think about um, modality as having its existence and foundation in a thing. Fundamentum in re is the way it's been discussed uh, in, in terms of properties and attributes. So anything that has a foundation in something, then we ask the question, what is the foundation, for example, of God's wrath? Well, the foundation is God's goodness, that is, his own attribute of goodness, which is exemplified in holiness and justice and other things that are uh, rightly attributed to God, because we see those in Scripture. Um, But it also has to do with the presence of sin. Now, um, you you don't have that uh, apart from creation, and so now we have uh, certain attributes, characteristics, properties of God uh, that he's taken on that in no way change who he is essentially, but at the same time uh, are there because of the reality of what God has created and and providentially controls and the reality of what we do uh, in creation. So I would say uh, an attribute like wrath presupposes not only creation but the presence of sin, but the foundation, the fundamentum in re, the the fundamental in the thing is the characteristic of, of God himself, the attribute of God himself, which is foundational who he is, that is his goodness. Now, if we look at, for example, at um, God's uh, revelation to um, Joshua in Joshua 5 as the divine warrior, there we obviously have uh, created properties and attributes. The fundamentum in Ray there would be the foundation in the thing would be creation because Joshua is confronted with this divine warrior and wants to know, you know, where does he stand? Are you with us or against us? Well, that was the wrong question. The answer is no. <laughs> Wasn't meant to be a yes or no, but that's the way um, the divine warrior answered it. Uh, so he has his foundation there and in his revelation in creation in terms of the properties that are accrued to him that he assumes at that point temporarily in order to reveal himself to Joshua. So I think, you know, once we think about um, the uh, the properties as modes, this is important, I think, uh, you know, if we get into discussions of metaphysics, once we think about these properties as modes, then we recognize um, that those modes have a fundamentum and ray, a foundation in the thing. And this, by the way, is the reason, one of the reasons, just to move back to our discussion, that in Trinitarian discussions, the Reformed were insistent um, that the that with with respect to the ontological trinity, the the persons, Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit are modalities, mm-hmm. uh, so that you don't have thing upon thing upon thing. Uh, ray plus ray plus ray um, equals uh, the substance of God, but they're modalities with respect to God, which doesn't mean that they're not real. There, that's no question about the fact that they're real. But there's a foundation with respect to who they are. And I think that's the way, and that's the way that we've uh, historically, at least in our better lights, have discussed God's attributes and properties, and that's the way I think it's best to discuss uh, God's revelation to us throughout redemptive history. Can I give a concrete example and see what we can do with it in terms of just condescension? I was thinking of the baptism of Jesus, and um, if you take Matthew 3, just read it quickly. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so obviously you, ha- you have a lot of Trinitarian stuff going on. And so um, in terms of uh, what is going on in covenantal condescension and the word being the mediator of that, how would you describe then like the, the spirit of God descending like a dove, um, taking on a physical form? Then you have the voice from heaven. It's assumed that it's the father talking to the son um, would we want to say that it's the 
uh, second person of the Trinity mediating to the incarnate second person of the Trinity. I'm trying to figure out how our categories apply to, let's say, this verse in particular. I think what we what we have in this passage in Matthew, which is just a great example, is a, a beautiful picture, maybe the the best uh, picture in in Scripture of God's triune condescension with its revelatory focus in the Son, uh, because the Father is speaking, He condescends in that way to speak, but His speaking has its own focus in the Son, and the Spirit uh, condescends in the form of a dove, but but He's descending in order to do what? In order to be with and in the Son. And so you have the Father and the Spirit there in their condescension modes, focusing their attention on the Son Himself as the preeminent revelation of Christ. So that, that to me, is, is one of the best pictures in all of Scripture of God's triune condescension given to us there, with its revelatory focus in the second person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is an amazing truth, and and we see uh, the marriage or the importance of of these theological categories coming through in in just you know basic practical ways. Yeah, like these can two I, aren't can divorced. Just, mm-hmm. Let me let me just try to let me just try to make some more enemies here. See when <laughs> when 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 I read when I read Thomas on on God's uh, relationship to creation, it, it, it in my view it could not be more dry, more abstract more utterly divorced from my daily reading of Scripture than any other philosophy that I read. I just, you know, I think I I can see what the appeal has been. The appeal and the the right motive here has been to affirm all that we affirm about God, essentially. But when you open up your Bible and you start reading uh, how God interacts with His people and with creation and with sin and with evil— uh, all in the context of a focus from Genesis 3 on a focus of the Son of God uh, coming to redeem. When you read that, you have to know theologically and biblically that there's there's something much richer and deeper going on here than simply, um, yeah, God is eternal and he speaks a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, that, that will not preach. That says uh, nothing about what's happening in terms of God's relationship to creation. So I think we have not been, we in the Reformed tradition, let me just be uh, specific, have not been sufficiently Christocentric in our understanding of God's revelation throughout history, creation history from from the beginning and then uh, from the fall, redemptive history on and into eternity, we've not been sufficiently Christocentric in our understanding of that. And because of that, we miss some of the richness and depth of what Scripture gives us. And I think we miss what it means to worship the triune God as the, the creator and redeemer because we don't see that depth and richness in the way that it's given to us in the Bible. Yeah. I agree. And one issue here, you've already invoked Voss, and in, in your book you invoke Herman Ritterboss. I very much appreciate the interaction with those two men, and, and especially considering their great contributions to a Reformed understanding of redemptive history. Uh, we want to be Christocentric. Uh, Hebrews 1.3 speaks about you know this apex of revelation as it comes in Jesus Christ. But on a Vossian note, um, how can we work this out? Because we understand the decree. We understand that God decreed sin, and that that would entail many things. Uh, but you know, so uh, eschatology precedes soteriology, and if we want to maintain the integrity of the prelapsarian order, how do we do that while also understanding this central role of the Son? Do is it is it uh, um, 
too much to maybe talk about heliocentrism or something like that? Is that splitting hairs? Or how can we understand the central role of the Son of God even prior to the historical necessity for the God-man, per se? Yeah, that that's a great question. And it, as you know, it's very complex. It gets into lapsarian discussions and things like that. But I, I think, um, you know, your, your term, uh, weocentric, I've used that that before. And I, and I think it's a I think it's a good term, because uh, in my view, what we have uh, even before the fall is um, the uh, revelation of the son of God in the garden, uh, walking uh, and, and confronting Adam and, and all of these things taking place with respect to God's revelation uh, in, in and through the Son. Now, see, I think that, so there's discontinuity there, of course, but there's continuity as well. And the continuity, pre and post-fall, I think we have to reckon, uh, is the life uh, that God promised uh, on the one side by virtue of Adam's obedience and on the other side by virtue of uh, God's provision of redemption. But in, in, in both cases, there's life promised, and that life, um, as as the prologue of the Gospel of John uh, shows us, that life is intrinsic to the Son Himself. So we have the Son then um, focused even before the fall, because again, He is, as Calvin and Bavink and others have said, He is the quintessential revelation of God throughout creation history. Uh, so there there is no discontinuity in that sense, in terms of the medium of revelation. The discontinuity is uh, the life on the one side, that is, uh, prior to the fall, the life has to do with Adam's uh, obedience, and on the other side, it has to do with the, the second Adam's obedience. One of the views that is uh, seeping into, or at least appears to be seeping into some evangelical circles is the notion of a covenantal ontology. Um, and uh, I wondered if you could comment on that uh, in terms of you putting forward, speaking about God's triunity relative to the covenant and creation. Why is um, why is a covenantal ontology being put forward, and where is it going wrong? Well, um, that that relates uh, directly to the to the back to the Ellis book um, because um, uh, Brandon, um, Doctor Ellis, wants to uh, affirm uh, that kind of thing in the in the last chapter. The last chapter of the book is kind of his uh, way of uh, moving uh, the discussion forward. And it's the only chapter in which I have um, what I think are some some mild uh, criticisms of the way he formulates things. And one of my criticisms there uh, in in uh, in Ellis's uh, construct is he talks about a covenantal ontology. Now, now I I tell him uh, or I say in, in my review um, in the Westminster Journal that um, that may not be a very helpful category in in part because it's so diffuse and ambiguous. Um, uh, Bardians use it, and, and some Orthodox folks use it, and 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 nobody is, uh, I, I think, um, spelling that out in in a in a precise way. Um, so let me think of it. Let me uh, speak of it this way: If we talk about the creator uh, creation distinction, and uh, think about that as a beginning point for everything that we talk about in terms of uh, metaphysics and epistemology, you know, all those sorts of things. Then maybe we can uh, affirm something like a, a covenantal uh, ontology. But see, even if we do that, we haven't gone uh, deeply enough, have we? Because uh, behind that is the ontological trinity. And so what, what I think we have to begin with, then, is the ontological trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, in whom uh, there is no covenantal relation apart from the decree. 
so that the Father is not ontologically related to the Son covenantally. He is related to the Son uh, covenantally only by virtue of the decree in creation, but not ontologically. And so I think, um, in, in other words, uh, you could ask it this way. Before there was creation, um, what was it? Uh, and before there was the decree, and we have to speak that way because Scripture does, but we don't know what before means when we're talking about eternity. But but uh, at, at the point when there was no decision to decree, let's say it that way, uh, what what would the Father and the Son and the Spirit have covenanted to do and to be? And, and on what basis would there be a covenant? See, a covenant uh, presupposes something odd extra, that is, something external to God, uh, such that there is an agreement now, a commitment um, outside of who God is that did not have to be what it is. Uh, but within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everything that is ontologically is necessarily what it is. So, so it's it's um, I think it's impossible biblically to construe what a uh, necessary covenantal relation would be uh, with respect to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't think we have any um, any indications, any uh, data biblically to try to affirm such a thing. And for that reason, I think um, speaking of just a covenantal ontology. I can see why the Bardians do it, because they have no brief for orthodoxy. So covenantal ontology is fine with the Bardian, because Jesus was eternally incarnate, and there was never a time when he wasn't incarnate, or never a point at which he wasn't incarnate, and incarnation is of the essence, as, as Bart says, of the essence of who God is. And if, the, if God is essentially incarnate, then there's no real creator-creature distinction, so a covenant ontology makes sense. But I don't see how you can affirm something like that and be orthodox apart yeah. from grounding that ontology in the ontological trinity, which now you're into a kind of double ontology, and it gets very ambiguous and confusing, I think. Yeah, there's genuine otherness in in the trinity, in, because there are three persons eternally, but yet exactly. there's, there's not an economy per se. And that's part of the problem. I mean, this lurking in the background, I think, of some of the covenantal ontology discussions is this presupposition, um, whether it's explicit or not, thematic or not, <laughs> you end up having some sort of, of, uh, of an economy. Uh, and, and even though we find one in the Pactum Salutis, that presupposes God has already condescended and that he's already thinking of and directed toward creation, yeah, which see, is not that, the case in eternity. I mean, right. prior, I see, mean in, in his essence, I should say. Yeah. Right. And to see, that's, that's just a monumentally important point, because I think what... Um, what Westminster Confession 7.1 does for us, what it helps us do is provide a category, a biblical category, I think, in which we can see that, that covenant, by definition, is always and only voluntary. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so you can, you, it, it attaches in that way biblically to the Pactum Salutis. If you don't have that category, then, then the only category you have remaining, and I've seen, that, seen this in some of the literature, the only category you have remaining is eternity, and whatever is eternal is thereby necessary, and the Pactum Salutis is eternal, therefore it's necessary, and then you move from that to creation. Well, you can't do that theologically. See, there can be no way in which the Pactum Salutis has a necessity attached. It has to be voluntary, and God's voluntary condescension by which he commits himself to that which is odd extra. So I think that's the beauty and the genius of con of Confession Seven One that has not really uh, yet uh, taken on the the robust um, um, I think parameters it ought to in Reformed thinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I guess for uh, throw a bone to the Vantillians out there who'd like to study Vantill on the Trinity and see someone, I think, that tries to go in these directions, but I don't think it's necessarily helpful. Uh, there's a book out there many of the Vantillians might not even know about by Ralph Smith, Paradox and Truth, Rethinking Vantill on the Trinity. <laughs> but um, he, he tries to make a covenant more of an essential characteristic or a category within the Trinity, um, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist in covenant with themselves. Um, prior to any notion of condescension or relation to creation. And, yeah. and it, leads, it leads into a host of all sorts of other issues when you start to go in that direction. It really does. I think it leads into some, some significant problems, not the least of which is speculation. I just yeah. don't think we have any data that, that uh, move us in that direction. But I also think we, we can see then the covenant replete throughout not only history, but um, replete in the context of God's voluntary condescension, which, which you know, I think gives it a, a meaning of his glory that we don't often um, speak about. Yeah. You mentioned, we mentioned Voss uh, a little bit ago, and we don't have time to go into uh, all the implications of this, but I was just wondering if you could um, kind of give a, a plug for the Voss article that you include in God With Us. It's uh, called The Range of the Logos Title and the Prologue of the Fourth Gospel. And, um, it's in the Redemptive History and Biblical Interpretation volume, uh, his shorter writings. But um, I was wondering if you could maybe just summarize it and um, tell us why it was important to include that and some of the observations you, you make there, even in parallel with like Romans 1. Right. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll have to um, leave it to the reader because the exegetical detail is beyond what we can do here. But um, yeah, Voss uh, wrote this, um, as you said, uh, and as a short piece, there were actually it was two parts to it. And, and uh, one of the parts, I think part two, Dr. Gaffin included in his shorter writings, and it's the part that has its uh, primary focus in the prologue to, uh, to John's gospel. And, and um, uh, Voss says there, and he's writing now in the 19th century, he says that he's, he's um, uh, affirming what he calls the older exegesis of the prologue. Now, that's in the 19th century. And I think what, what crept in uh, in the uh, newer exegesis, even during the time of Austin, certainly in the 20th century, you find, um, I haven't found one, one commentator yet who follows Voss's exegesis on that, one, one contemporary commentator. What you find in the newer exegesis is that the prologue to uh, the Gospel of John, we're thinking now, let's just say, uh, focusing primarily on verses 1 through 11, um, that, that the prologue has its focus uh, first of all, in the incarnation. Um, so, uh, what when you when you're uh, when you're thinking then about what the prologue of the Gospel of John says, it always is saying it with reference to uh, Christ uh, in the flesh, which doesn't actually enter John's uh, discussion until uh, verse uh, fourteen, as we know. But um, Voss's exegesis um, moves uh, instead to show that that Christ, that the Son of God. Uh, is uh, the mediator uh, from the beginning. Uh, all things were made through him, verse 3. Uh, without him, it was not anything made that was made. And then, um, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, what, what John is trying to articulate there is that the Son of God is the one who is the life giver, not in, dis- not in separation from the Father and the Spirit, but certainly focused on the Son, and that that uh, light then continues to shine in the darkness, that uh, light that is the sun shines even in Genesis 3 in the entrance of sin, and that the, the true light, which uh, gives light to everyone, verse 9, 
uh, is uh, coming into the world. So the, the, the Son of God is the one, in, in Voss's uh, construal, and I think here the, the exegetical way uh, proves it, that the Son of God is the one who is the life of all people, every person, who is the light to every person, even in the midst of darkness. And as verse 9 says, he is the one who enlightens everyone. Uh, and that enlightening is equivalent uh, to uh, Paul's discussion in Romans uh, 1, 18 to 20, uh, with respect to the knowledge of God that remains in all of us. So the Son of God is the one who enlightens everyone and is coming into the world. So the prologue is announcing uh, the, the mediator as the one who has been working since there was life, and has been giving light, that is knowledge, since there was knowledge, and continued to do that even after the fall, and now is taking on uh, human flesh and, and tabernacling among us, as he says in, in, in verse 14. So it's a magnificent, I think, deep and rich uh, biblical theological way of understanding the work of the Son of God throughout creation and then culminating now centrally in the work of the incarnation. It's just a, it's, it, you know, you, some, somebody said, and I think it was Augustine who said something like, you know, scripture is uh, shallow enough for uh, anyone to uh, wade in deep enough that an elephant can swim in. Well, the, the John, the Gospel of John, which, uh, you know, as all of us know who have studied Greek, is, is one of the easiest books to read in Greek, uh, has a depth to it that uh, is, uh, is really just uncanny uh, in terms of what the Spirit of God did uh, in inspiring John to write this, that I think uh, it helps us see the depth of who Christ is, the Son of God is, even uh, prior to his incarnate state. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow, gentlemen, this has been a fantastic discussion, uh, just uh, thoroughly interesting and something we can talk about in future episodes and continue to ask some of these questions. But I want to thank uh, you both, uh, Derek and Jared, for joining us, but especially Dr. Oliphant. Thanks for joining us today and, and bringing to us such great material. Great to be with you guys. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, you can find out more information about what Dr. Oliphant is up to, as well as uh, what the seminary is up to at wts.edu. A lot of great material there. Of course, Dr. Oliphant's book, Covenantal Apologetics, is still available and doing very well. Uh, an excellent book. I'm working through that and using some material from that in an adult Sunday school class I'm teaching. So I would encourage you to pick up a copy of that book, as well as God With Us, Divine Condescension and the Attributes of God. God, published by Crossway. Available now. You can find these books and others at wtsbooks.com. You can visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well as uh, ways to get in touch with us. Uh, You can send us an email using our contact form or you can tweet us at Reformed Forum. We love hearing from you and we love interacting with our many listeners. Uh, It's always a great time and edifying to all of us. So we encourage you uh, to do so. We look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.